0: Next on Lectures in History... Providence College professor Edward Andrews teaches a class on early English missions in colonial America. He describes the efforts of Protestant preachers such as John Eliot to convert Native Americans in New England. Missionaries often used Native translators and created separate praying towns to consolidate Christian Indians. Disputes between colonists and Native leaders over religion, land, and sovereignty led to King Philip's War in the 1670s. Alright folks, so welcome back and I think we are going to get started today. Um, we are shifting the direction of our course today. We're moving away from Catholics and in particular the Jesuits. We spent a lot of time talking about the Jesuits in this in this course. Um, and we're going to be moving towards the Protestants, right? Uh, we're going to be looking at some of their missionary efforts, some of the work that they did, and in particular today we're looking at uh, their work in early New England. Um, one thing that I want you guys to think about for seminar is this really critical question. You've basically done a whole kind of crash course uh, in Jesuit missionary work for the last four weeks, right? So, you know, think about this. I think about some of the, the, the text that we've read and the work that we've gone through, right? So you remember we did a, a week on uh, Spanish missions in South America by looking at the film The Mission, right? We, we did some work with the Jesuit relations and, and watched Black Robe. Then we did the novel Silence, right, and Scorsese's uh, adaptation of that novel into a film. So we've been in you know, South America, New France, Japan, and we've been doing this for about four weeks. So the question that I'd, maybe we can start our seminars off with uh, this Thursday is why? <laughs> why do we spend so much time talking about the Jesuits? And I have my own reasons, <laughs> you know, and I have my own answers to that, to that question, but I'd like you guys to develop that. And maybe write that down and make a note to yourselves. You know, why are we spending so much time talking about the Jesuits in this course on colonialism and conversion? Right? Maybe that's something we can kind of start the, the conversation off with. Um, one of the things I should say, as a, as a way to segue into this discussion of, Pro, ooh, I'll come back to that, Protestant missionaries, is that you know the Jesuits really do inform and shape Protestant missionary work in really important ways. Um, you guys probably know this from your Western Civilization course, but. Um, the Protestants and Catholics don't exactly get along that well in the 16th and, and 17th centuries. And so whenever Protestants look at the expansion and the rise of the Jesuits, they kind of look at them in two ways, right? I mean, on the one hand, they look at the success of the Jesuits and, and Protestants say, well, you guys are talking about thousands of conversions in Japan or thousands of conversions in South America. And the Protestants cry foul and they say, that's, that's ridiculous. There's no way that these people are, are truly converted, Right. Um, and they say, that's ridiculous, you're using these you know, different tactics, they're not really baptized, they're not really converted, it doesn't really count, and all those types of things. So there's a real kind of critique there. But on the other hand, you know, Protestants are also kind of, in some ways, jealous of the Jesuits and the, the numbers, even if they think that they're, they're inflated, right? The Protestants um, look at the Jesuits and the kind of successes that they claim to have, and they say that we should be doing the same, right? And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about Protestant missionary work in the 17th and 18th centuries, and one of the things you guys really should be considering is the com- comparisons and contrasts with Catholic and Protestant missionary work, all right? Um, what are the distinctions? What are the differences? Where do they overlap? Um, and, uh, and how do they unfold in different ways, okay? So think about those questions as we're, as we're moving forward, all right? So today, um, and this is obviously, you know, some images from that, from that discussion that we've been having the last couple weeks, right? So today, I want to start by talking about a man named John, right? Usually when you talk about early English missions to New England in the 17th century, we talk about a guy named John Eliot, who we'll spend a lot of time exploring today. But I want to talk about this guy instead, and you kind of don't even really see him. You don't even really see his his full body, but um, this is an image uh, depicting the death of a man named John Sassamon. How many of you have heard of John Sassamon? Have you ever even heard the name John Sassamon? I kind of expected that, maybe one half hand, right? Um, I kind of expected that. John Sassamon is is definitely not a a famous person, a famous figure, famous historical figure, certainly not a a famous um, celebrity, right? Uh, But he has a really important, he plays a really important role in the shaping of early New England history and his life and especially his death. Is going to be uh, a really important factor towards the end of the 17th century. Right? This image is depicting an event in late of January 19 or yes, 19, 1675, Okay, John Sassaman, uh, His body, uh, a couple weeks after this, was, was found bloated and frozen in a you know under a, an icy pond, right, half submerged in a town that's now called Lakeville. Massachusetts. If you if you draw a line from Providence, Rhode Island to uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts, you would basically come across Lakeville. It's just a little bit south of that line, but um, this is where his body was found. And I should say that, you know, events like this, like deaths were, you know, water-oriented deaths, were were not necessarily uncommon in the colonial age. So, you know, originally people thought, well, maybe he drowned, right? Or some scholars have speculated, maybe the guy had a heart attack. he, He was in his 50s, life expectancy wasn't super high in the 17th century, so, you know, maybe he died of natural causes. But there's one really important factor that suggests that there was foul play involved, which is why we have this image as represented here, right? And the main factor was that a couple of weeks before, John Sassamon had informed English colonial officials that a man named Metacom, who was an Indian leader, leader of the Wampanoags, a man named Metacom, he also went by the name of Philip, Sassamon informed English colonial officials that a man named Metacom, A.K.A. Philip, was planning a massive attack on English colonial settlements in New England. So Sassamon, in this role, was uh, kind of playing the role of an informant. And according to the documents, it looks like he paid dearly for it. Now, Philip himself is a fascinating figure. We're going to spend some time talking about him. But John Sassamon, who none of you have really ever heard of, is, I think, equally fascinating. I want to give you a little bit of background about Sassamon. So Sassamon grew up in a white English household. He was a, a servant to a New Englander living in Dorchester. Massachusetts, he became a converted Christian, eventually became a a, a school teacher and interpreter. His talents were recognized pretty early on by English colonial officials to the point that they suggested that he go to college, right? and he actually studied for a time at Harvard. Right? So John Sassamon, he, he didn't graduate, but he studied at, at Harvard, the college that was founded in the middle of the 1630s in Cambridge. Right? And after Harvard, he becomes a schoolteacher and, and a minister and a preacher. He's kind of an, uh, an ambassador, an interpreter. Later on in his life, he's going to be a, a kind of secretary for King Philip. right. He's going to be a kind of scribe or clerk for King Philip. Sassamon is what scholars would call, and you should write this down, Sassamon is what scholars would call a, a cultural broker. right? A cultural broker. And cultural brokers were, were figures that kind of bridged the gap between two cultures. In this case, English and Indian culture. And you guys have actually seen cultural brokers work before. In the film Silence, and in the novel Silence, I can think of two cultural brokers. Right, and can you guys think of the two cultural brokers, people who kind of bridge the gap, who interpret, who translate? Yeah, Asa? Well, the Japanese interpreter for um, the judgment priest. Say that again. Yeah. The Japanese interpreter for yeah. um, the priest. Yeah, the Japanese interpreter, right? The Japanese interpreter. He's he's. Remember the scene with Inua, and and Inoue is kind of you know, they're having that debate between Inua and Rodriguez, right? And and Inoue can speak Portuguese pretty well but there are certain kind of complexities or subtle nuances in the language that anyway doesn't really grasp so they have the interpreter there right and t- the interpreter was trained by the jesuits he's definitely a cultural broker there's one more cultural broker too yeah uh would it be ferrera like between uh ferrera between Ferreira. rodriguez and like converting and or apostasizing yeah especially at the end Ferreira seems to become a kind of cultural broker and it it seems anyways from his conversation that he seems to be much less interested Uh, maybe he's forced to do this right but much less interested in kind of spreading you know the Portuguese nation state and Christian religion right anybody else especially early in the film who maybe acts as like a a gateway or a doorway into Japan yeah Kichijiro acts as a doorway into Japan yeah Kichijiro right Kichijiro is a cultural broker Right? Kichijiro is, a, is definitely a cultural broker. They, they, they can't get to Japan without Kichijiro. And, and Kichijiro is the one who, who kind of introduces them to, to the village that they kind of start off in. Right? Um, and I think Sasamon and Kichijiro are probably more similar. Right, uh, Because you know, Sasamon and Kichijiro both reflect the kind of tragic consequences of being a cultural broker in the 17th century, right? Being caught between these these two societies, right? Sassamon, in particular, was caught between this, this rapidly expanding English colonial enterprise in New England uh, and an indigenous society that was feeling the unbearable pressure of land loss, disease, uh, and cultural change, right? In the end, as we're gonna discuss, the death of Sassamon is going to ignite, arguably, the most catastrophic and cataclysmic war in American history, and it's a war that we don't talk enough about, right? So today, what I really want to do is I want to just explore how, how we got there, right? How did we get to the point where John Sassamon's cold body was found under the frozen ice in what's now Lakeville, Massachusetts, okay? And to do that, we're going to talk about the origins of these missions, right? We're going to talk about their development, we're going to talk about how they contributed to, to war and conflict. And then I want to spend some time at the end discussing memory, right? How we kind of memorialize and think about this going forward, okay? All right, so let's talk a little bit about in- Indians and English in 1630, right? In 1630. 1630, I should say, is the uh, why I chose that date. That's the year of the, the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, all right? We'll spend time talking about this, but by 1630, there are really two... Puritan groups operating in what's going to become Massachusetts. Okay? One of them is in, in Plymouth, so those are the pilgrims when you guys think of Thanksgiving and the belt buckles and stuff on their hats, right? That's, that's the pilgrims. Uh, and then the Puritans, right, are, are in Boston. They form a, a community called Massachusetts Bay Colony. So this is at the time, 1630 is when we see Mass Bay, right? So let's talk about native New England a little bit, right? And you guys remember when we talked about uh, the Jesuit relations and black robe, we already spent a lot of time discussing native North America, right? Um, What it looked like, the rise and fall of civilizations and empires and kingdoms, Um, you know, gender, leadership structures. We talked about religion. We talked about things like the, the importance of visions and dreams to indigenous peoples, right? The power of those things, you know, indigenous religions, all these things, right? And one of the things that I really tried to impress upon you guys was the fact that when you look at native North America in general, and when you look at New England in the 17th century, native New England before 1630, it's important to understand that the societies are not static, right? You should write that down, note that, right? The societies are, are not static. They're not kind of stuck in a, in a state of development. They're not kind of, you know, in a standstill uh, state at this point, right? They're, they're ever-changing, and they're, they're evolving, right, and developing. The second thing to understand is that they're not monolithic, right? They're, they're not a monolithic society. You can, this map kind of says it pretty clearly, and although this is not a a perfect map. It does does capture some of those distinctions, right? You've got a bunch of different groups here. I mean, you know, for the Southeastern New, New England Indians that we're talking about, they generally share the Algonquian dialect, right? We talked about those linguistic differences a couple of weeks ago when we did black robe and the Jesuit relations, right? So Algonquian, they share that, that language branch, right? But there are still important distinctions between these tribal communities, right? important distinctions. Sometimes they forge relationships with one another through trade and through kinship, right? So sometimes they're forming these kind of bonds that are really important. Other times they're competing with one another for power and for resources, right? Where they they try to kind of you know, engage in one-upsmanship against one another, or turn other communities into, like, tributaries, right, so that they can kind of bring in some, some cash or, you know, money, corn, you know, other kinds of assets and resources, right? So there is also a, a lot of competition between them as well. And importantly, even before the first permanent settlements in New England, New England Indians are already feeling the, the brunt and the burden of the Columbian Exchange, you guys remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, what the Columbian Exchange was. It was a really kind of key concept, a core idea that we talked about. Remember the Columbian Exchange? It's OK to go back to your notes if you need a, a couple seconds to do so. You remember? Yeah, Joe? Uh, it's like a three-way triangle between like, the colonies and Europe, and then I think through Africa. So like slaves would be exported. Um, you had food going back and forth, and then Europeans essentially brought disease over as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we talked about this, right? We talked about the, the Colombian exchange is the exchange of things like people, right? But, Joe, you had mentioned, you know, goods, plants, animals, and diseases, right? So in these things, like these these factors affect indigenous peoples even before the arrival of permanent settlements, right? So even before we get Plymouth in 1620 and, you know, Massachusetts Bay in 1630, there are traders and explorers and fishermen and others who are kind of making contact with indigenous peoples and their neighbors. And when they come, they're spreading ideas and trade goods and also diseases, right? In 1616, beginning in 1616, there's a series of epidemics that absolutely... um, kind of wreak havoc among the Wampanoag people in in eastern Massachusetts, right? Um, There's a a scholar at George Washington University, David Silverman, who's writing a book about this, because we don't know as much about this as we should, but we do think that somewhere between two-thirds to maybe upwards of 90% of the Wampanoag population um, was killed by this, this wave of diseases even before the pilgrims arrived, or I should say right before the, the pilgrims arrive. right? Um, so I think what's really interesting and important about this, this native context is that when the English arrive, some indigenous peoples are going to see them as a problem and as a challenge. Some indigenous peoples are going to see them as a potential opportunity, right? And that's something that we're going to explore um, further on down the line. Now, for the English, all right, we had mentioned, you know, they really have two main kind of political groups that, that we're talking about here. Um, Plymouth Colony, founded in 1620, and again, Mass Bay Colony in, in 1630, right? Uh, we don't have a lot of time to go into the background or the theology of this, but we know that they're products of the Protestant Reformation. We know that they are Calvinists who believe in, in predestination, right? And we know that they strongly feel that Europe, and in particular, England, is not a place where they can thrive, Right? That, that Europe as a whole, and England in particular, has been tainted and corrupted by the Roman Catholic Church and by the Anglican Church, right? And that for them to create a truly godly community where they can worship the way that they want to worship, they need to go somewhere else, right? So they end up going to, to New England, okay? They truly believe themselves as a, as a chosen people, right? And so they look to things like the book of Exodus. What happens in the book of Exodus. Who, who are the chosen people in the book of Exodus? You know? Yeah, Liz? Moses leads the Jews out of slavery in Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Moses, Moses lead the, leads the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt, right, to, to come to a new land of milk and honey, a kind of new promised land for them, right? You see the same type of rhetoric kind of pervading, you know, Puritan thinking that this is going to be a new land and there are new chosen people, a place where they can, you know, create this new covenant with God to create a truly godly community, Right? And there's a famous line from a sermon given by this guy. There's a great image just on Google with the Red Sox hat. I just thought that was cool. Um, uh, And it's from, you know, John Winthrop, one of the kind of key leaders of this Puritan Exodus who founds Mass Bay Colony, uh, in his sermon, A Model of Christian Charity, right? Uh, And in this sermon, he has this really famous line where he says, we're going to consider ourselves as a city upon a hill, right? The eyes of all people are upon us so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we've undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us until we be consumed out of the good land where we are going. Right? What's he, what is he saying there? What is, he, what is he saying there? What's the main point? when He says, we're a city upon a hill. What do you think he means by that? What does he mean by that, a city upon a hill? Yeah, A model for the rest of the communities. Yeah, that's it. He's saying, you know, when, when we come to this new land, we are going to be a model. We're going to be a kind of shining beacon, right, for these other communities, for everybody else throughout the world. In the city upon a hill idea, raise your hand if you, I am not call on you, but ra- raise your hand if, if, you've, if you've heard of this phrase before, the city upon a hill. Yeah, a lot of you, right? Because it fills our political discourse and our rhetoric, right? So um, the famous speeches by JFK and Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama have all used this idea. It's the idea of essentially American exceptionalism, that this is going to be a very special place, right? All right, so the stakes are high. It's just not about leaving, right, and coming to a new place. It's about creating a godly community that's going to be an example to everybody else. I should mention that this doesn't mean that they believe in religious toleration, right? It means they're getting their own or pursuing their own religious toleration, but other groups that would kind of attack them or challenge kind of their religious beliefs were a real problem, right? And the Puritans were not... Uh, super open to, to other beliefs. In fact, there was one guy named uh, Roger Williams, who in the 1630s argued that uh, that this was wrong, that there should be a, a society and a, a community built on the principles of um, freedom of conscience and, and religious liberty, right? And the Puritans essentially exile him and kick him out, like threaten to kill him, right? Um, anybody know where he goes? Yeah. Here, right? Here, Providence, right? He, he founds... Providence believing that this the, the creation of this new community was a moment of divine intervention, right? So you are here because of these types of tensions. I think that's that's something important to, to keep in mind, right? Now, since the inception of these efforts, missionary work was, on paper, a very important part of their discussion, an important part of their motives, right? So the charter that they used to to kind of justify and explain their, their efforts here, uh, the Charter of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which was drafted in 1629, as it says here, claims that English colonists were going to win and incite the natives of the country to the knowledge and obedience of the only true God and Savior of mankind and the Christian faith. And they say this is the principal end of this plantation. Right And the seal of the colony on the right, right here, the seal that they choose, the symbolism that they choose, expressed in visual forms that same idea. And as I was driving down this morning, I was thinking about this seal and I was thinking, well, you could have had a lot of different things for the seal, right? Like you could have had a Bible or like a hat with a belt buckle on it or a seal. Like wouldn't that be weird to have like a seal as an, on the seal? On a seal of a seal? That'd be a little strange. But they chose a Native American. They chose an American Indian as the seal, right? So I'm actually, I want you guys to take a look at this and just. Suggest or, or offer an insight into maybe why they chose it, and also what is interesting about this image. What do you what do you note that is kind of uh, interesting or or problematic or com- compelling about this image? What is it trying to communicate to you? How do we how do we read it? Yeah, Asa. Well. The image of like the leaves in front of the natives first comes to mind as like imagery of like Adam and Eve like in the garden and kind of has like this like um, utopian idea of like m- like mankind and they can like go in and like like the tabula rasa kind of incentive and try yep. to like push the natives towards like a European standard of yeah like, yeah anxiety. good there's def- there's a really strong kind of Garden of Eden. Uh, idea that's coming through there, right? We see this with kind of like the fig leaf situation, right? Um, and also like the nakedness, right? The, the nakedness and the nudity. And, and I'll suggest to you guys, you can, you can read when you see these kinds of images, you can read nakedness and nudity in, in two different ways. So if they have an image of, of an Indian as, as naked, right? What does that suggest, right? you imagine like you're a European or you're in, you're in London or something. You see that image. What's your like first thought? Um, something could be that they're uncivilized. Yeah, so, so your first thought could be, oh, they're uncivilized, right? They're, they're savage, they're barbaric, they're running around naked, right? That's, that's one, right? But then, to build off Dace's point, there's actually another way to read it, which is kind of interesting. There's a, there's a deeper way to read it, right? If you're talking Garden of Eden and nudity, what's that? It's not necessarily uncivilized, savage, barbaric. There's another way to read it, yeah. It's innocence, right? It's innocence. And maybe Desa's point, the kind of tabula rasa, you know, the, the point that maybe they could be converted Christians, right? Maybe they could become good, good Christians. We see this in this kind of, you might remember this from the Paul Lejeune uh, excerpts from the, the Jesuit relations, okay? So we've got kind of a half-naked Indian with some plants. Uh, we have the Latin seal, right? The seal of the government and society of Massachusetts Bay in Nova Anglia. What's that? That's easy. New England, right? In Nova, New England, okay? And what's this person saying? Come over and help us. What do you make of that? What do you make of that? Yeah. Um, I think it like, justifies their cause of coming over and helping to convert these people. Yeah. Yeah, it serves as a kind of literal kind of justification, right? A justification for the colonial project, but also maybe kind of motivation for people in England to come over as well, okay? Anybody else want to add to that? That insight? Spencer, yeah? going to to justification for manifest destiny. Yeah, sort of. it's kind of, the, the term manifest destiny doesn't get coined until like the 1840s. However, the, the idea seems to be there, right? The idea, it, it definitely seems like a kind of manifest destiny concept, right? Um, come over and help us. That native peoples need the help of the English, right? Um, this might be taxing you guys a little bit, but where is that phrase from? You guys have actually already read it. The first weeks of class, you have read that exact phrase. Anybody know? You remember back in the very beginning of the semester, right, when I gave a lecture on the blueprint, Mediterranean conversion and the Gentiles, we read Acts of the Apostles, right? This is from chapter 16, verse 9, Acts of the Apostles, where Paul has a dream that the Macedonians appear to him and they, and they say to him, come over and help us, right? So this is, so the Puritans are thinking of this project as like St. Paul 2.0, right? Paul 2.0, all right? So they're, they're engaging in a, in a similar project, right? So what do you think? True or false? They've got this, this seal. They've got the charter. They're like, we're going to preach to Indians. So when they arrive in the 1630s, they put all their energies into doing that. True or False. <laughs> false, right? That's the strange thing. Nothing happens in the beginning of the 1630s. There are a couple of small attempts, a couple of individuals who try to you know, do some missionary work, but the real story of Indian and English encounters in the 1630s is trade and war, right? There are a lot of trade goods being exchanged, and there's also a massive, I'll go, I'll go back to this image real quickly, there's a, a massive war in southern Connecticut, the, the Pequot War in 1637, right? Um, There's a a huge war where uh, English and their allies, including some Narragansetts as well, uh, they essentially uh, attack the Pequots, um, the Pequots are kind of intermediaries between uh, a variety of trading partners, including the Dutch here and, you know, the English and others. And so Pequots are one of the most powerful Indian communities in southern New England, and the English essentially attempt to to wipe them out, right? Uh, and there's a, a series of events, including one kind of huge massacre around what's near, near um, modern-day Mystic, Connecticut, where the English kill... Um, hundreds of, of innocent uh, women and, and children and elderly as well. And so this is a, a kind of a brutal moment, right, in, in early New England history, right? So but there's not a lot of missionary work going on in the 1630s, all right? That's going to change, okay? That's going to change largely because of this guy, John Eliot, who had a little bit of a weird Al Yankovic look to him. Not, not going to lie. Um, John Eliot is... Uh, an English Puritan comes over in 1631. And he becomes the pastor, right? The, the minister of the, the Roxbury Church right outside Boston. Definitely, sincerely motivated to engage in missionary work. But realizes there's a fundamental problem before he could even start doing so. And the problem was linguistic. It was a language problem, right? So in the 1630s, he set about engaging in learning the Algonquian dialect, and in particular, Massachusetts. He set about learning local indigenous languages. And you can't do that sort of work on your own. He actually had the help of a couple of people, including uh, an Indian captive from the Pequot War that we had just mentioned. And secondly, as somebody who was in the 1630s and eventually in the 1640s, building for himself a reputation as a skilled interpreter. Anybody know who that might be? Who's building for himself a reputation as a skilled interpreter? An Indian person who, I'll give you a hint, does not come to a very good end in the 1670s. We started the class with him. Yeah? Medicom? Not Medicom. Ah. Yes, not Medicom. The other one, John Sassamon. John Sassamon. Eliot gets helped out by John Sassamon, right? Um, so Eliot spends the 1630s learning indigenous languages, preparing himself for missionary work, and collaborating uh, with local Indians to try to move this forward, right? In the 1640s, he starts to preach to Indians around the town of Newton, with some success. And by 1651, this is really important, right? By 1651, Eliot and his sponsors, along with Indian associates, establish the town of Natick, right? Natick right here, as kind of the first model praying town. Right? It was Eliot's vision and the vision of his supporters that to preach to Indians, to really convert Indians, there had to be a fundamental revolution not only in their kind of spirituality but also in their behavior and in their very lifestyles, right? This, This we would call kind of civilization, right? Eliot believed that Christianity and civilization had to go hand in hand. So it wasn't just about what you believed but it was also about how you acted, right? It was also about how you acted and how you behaved. And the best way for Eliot, he believed, the best way to ensure kind of proper Christianity was to establish civilized English towns where Indians would come and live. They would live in English style homes. Right? They, would, they would take only one wife. Right? They would honor the Sabbath. They would wear English style clothing sometimes adopt English names like Paul and John and Job, right? A lot of times in the records you see kind of a mix between English and indigenous names. They would even cut their hair. They would even cut their hair, right? Eliot's program was a program designed to fundamentally alter indigenous spirituality, but also to to alter their, their way of life as well, right? And these praying towns, at least for a moment, actually become kind of successful. They actually become kind of successful. By the time of Sassamon's death, there are 14 of them. By the time of the 1670s, there's 14 of them. A lot of them are kind of the older ones are based around uh, the Massachusetts Indian communities, right? like Natick. But then other later ones are based around Wampanoag communities, right, down like Mashpee, down on, on Cape Cod. There's actually a pretty sizable um, Christian community on Martha's Vineyard as well. So it seems, at least during this period, that he's having some, some successes. Uh, estimates range that maybe between 2,000 to 4,000 Indians had either been converted or were living in these, these Indian towns, Right? And again, conversion, as we talked about earlier in the semester, is a, also a, a loaded term that we have to, have to be somewhat careful about. Right? In these towns, and in a really important story, one that we're going to talk about during our seminar, is, is in these towns, there were native preachers there, right? That, you know, John Elliott in Roxbury, when he would go to NA, they could be like once or twice a month, right? So who's doing the actual work? there? Who's doing the actual evangelical work? Who's leading the schools? Who's setting the psalms when they sing, right? Who's kind of checking in on people honoring the Sabbath? It was indigenous preachers, local preachers, and that's something that we're, gonna, we're, talking, we're talking about on, um, on Thursday, right? That's something that we're going to spend a lot more time exploring, right? Now, a question for you guys, you know, we've been spending time talking about colonialism and, and conversion, but let's think a little bit about motivation, right? So we have Eliot coming in in the 16th early 1650s, right, throughout the 1660s, establishing these towns, right? We see people, Indian people, moving to these towns, okay? It obviously creates tensions within, the, within Indian communities about whether they should move or whether they should not move, right? But we do have Indians living in pretty large numbers in some of these towns, right? So my question for you is, is why, right? Can we offer some opportunities or, or some, some interpretations, I should say, as to why, people would go to these towns. Any ideas as to, to possibilities? Or to imagine, if, if you're living in, in these communities, why you would go to a praying town? Any, any ideas? Any interpretations or possibilities as to why they would be interested in this? Would it be the message of Christianity or whether it be something else? Okay, yeah, Bridget? It could be opportunistic yeah. to develop a relationship with the English. Yeah. Okay. So that goes back to our kind of first discussion, right, of opportunistic conversions. That it could be, it could be opportunistic. When you say to develop a better relationship, what do you, you want to develop? That. What do you What do you mean by that? Uh, establish like trade with them, uh, connections, and probably convert. Just mm-hmm. that. Form a relationship and have goods from them to rely on. Okay, so part of it might be kind of an economic motivation, right? Part of it might be, you know, to engage in in trade, to get closer access to English trade goods that, you know, we talked about, Joe had mentioned in Define the Columbian Exchange, right? More trade goods coming in. There could be an economic opportunistic interpretation. Good. Any others? Yeah? Education opportunistic. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Um... Well, most preachers and like priests were really educated so they yeah. could teach them. Yeah, basically. yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, this is especially true, and we'll talk about this as we move through the course as well, Um, But the relationship between missionary work and education is is really, really critical um, and really important. There's a really key link there. And one of the things that we see is that sometimes indigenous peoples, whether we're talking about, you know, Native North America or whether we're talking about Africa or other places, um, they might be interested in missionaries because they bring education, not as interested in the kind of evangelical aspect of that, Right. Not as not we, we actually mentioned this when we talked about um, Japan briefly, that you know there were leaders in Japan who at one point welcomed the Portuguese in, weren't really that interested in, in Portuguese Catholicism, but were very interested in education and very interested in trade, right? So that's that's a possibility too. Maybe there's kind of educational opportunities there. That's that's a possibility as well. Any other ideas? Yeah. Maybe just to share curiosity, because like from listening to like other stories about um like other conversions or whatnot they get like an interest in like what's actually going on yeah so i think i you know when you you mentioned kind of other conversions and other stories um kinship probably has a lot to do with it right so if if some family members decide to go to a praying town you know there's going to be more pressure on other family members who are outside those towns to come into that community right so so whether we call that peer pressure or kinship or family or whatever however whatever you would kind of use to describe that that's part of an answer too right um any other possibilities? Any other ideas or possibilities? What about the message of Christianity? What about the idea of, we had mentioned, you know, 1616, there's a massive series of epidemics that go through uh, Wampanoag country. There's in New England another set of epidemics that happened in the 1630s and the 1640s. Would that play a factor? Would that have anything to do with it? Yeah. Um, maybe just thinking to, as to where people go after death in the afterlife. It's kind mm-hmm. of comforting. Okay, so part of it is like kind of the, the message in some way, maybe the message of, of, a, of, of a heaven, right? Um, and that could be a possibility. Okay. Any others? Yeah. Also, going back to the movie of Black Robot as to how like, that was their the last resort when they saw a disease breaking out and had no yeah. hope. Yeah. Yeah, it seems so. I mean, indigenous peoples, when they're seeing what's happening, when they see smallpox break out, for example, right, they notice something. They notice that the English may still get sick, but that the English have what we now call an immunity to it, right? But you don't interpret it epidemiologically in the 17th century, you you interpret it in terms of kind of the divine cosmos, right? You interpret it as, you know, possibly this English god is in fact stronger than indigenous deities, right? Or maybe there's something to the fact that, you know, these English seem to be expanding so rapidly. They have so much political and spiritual power, right? Um, So maybe it's part of it, you know, Bridget, you had mentioned to kind of create a closer alliance. And maybe part of it is also protection, right? You know, political protection uh, against other indigenous um, uh, and you know other indigenous antagonists, so there are a lot of different reasons there 's not one necessarily one particular reason why this happens, and one of the things we 're going to do in future courses or in future um, i think maybe yeah I guess this, this coming seminar i 'll give you guys a document to, to talk about this on thursday is we 're actually going to look at the confession. of of one indigenous person, one Massachusetts Indian, uh, who um, basically explained why he was joining this community. And we're gonna kind of work through it and use some methodological tools to try to get a sense of what is kind of European about this, but also what might be kind of distinctly indigenous, right? So there are a lot of different reasons why they join, and why these things happen, right? Um, I should also say that, you know, just like with the Jesuits, Printing is extremely important to this, to the development of these of these missions, right? Um, John Elliott uh, and his supporters—they know, as the Jesuits knew when they were engaging in their work, that communicating what was happening on the ground was really important for developing support, right? Getting kind of financial contributions. Right? You couldn't just kind of engage in the process of conversion and then not you know, boast about it. You actually had to you know, publicize this, market this, brand this. right? And, and that's what Eliot and his supporters were doing. Um, and so some of the first big pieces of, of printing that come out of, of New England are accounts that get, they do get printed in London, right? That's important to know. In the early years, they get printed in London. But they are accounts of missionary success, like the glorious progress of the gospel and, and tears of repentance. These are, you know, they take different forms, but sometimes they're letters from John Eliot or kind of simple accounts. Sometimes they kind of summarized Indian confessions or told little stories, Right? But the point, obviously, is to try to spread information about the success of these these Protestant missions, right? Something really interesting happens in the 1660s, and it's that John Eliot gets his hands on a printing press. A printing press itself finally comes to colonial New England, right? What Eliot does with it is he works with indigenous interpreters like John Sassamon, who we've met earlier, right, to create a kind of, help create uh, a written indigenous language. Right? Indigenous languages were, were oral languages, right? and there was no kind of written alphabet. John Eliot does this, right? and he creates, in, in 1663, he publishes um, the, uh, the, the Indian Bible in total, the Old and New Testament he publishes an Indian grammar in 1666, right? again with the help of Indian interpreters to help, again, with this kind of linguistic challenge. And then in 1671, he publishes a fascinating and kind of what I think is an understudied um, source uh, in a lot of ways the Indian, what's called Indian Dialogues. Th- this was published in English. The, you know, so that's important to note. But what it was is it was a series of like kind of quasi-imagined conversations between indigenous peoples who are reluctant to convert to Christianity and native preachers, right? So it's it's a kind of like Socratic dialogue between, you know, reluctant Christians and evangelical ones. And Eliot kind of compiled these this, this Indian dialogues from a kind of series of conversations that he had been having with people for, for decades about the kind of obstacles and the roadblocks that You know, uh, indigenous peoples faced in terms of conversion. So, like things like, all right, what do what do I do about marriage, or how do I keep the Sabbath holy, or um, if I am an Indian leader, you know, how will that affect my political status? They ask a lot of questions about Christianity, and John Eliot's Indian Dialogues is kind of a way to say, okay, here are the here are more clear cut answers to those questions. Right. One of the most fascinating characters in Indian Dialogues is King Philip. Eliot writes in King Philip into Indian dialogues, right? Why, simple, it seems like a simple question, and I think it, the answer is probably pretty simple, but why would John Eliot want the Indian leader, Medicom, or King Philip, why would John Eliot want him to become a Christian? Why does he spend so much time and energy now in the 1670s trying to get King Philip to become a Christian, why does Philip make it into the Indian dialogues? It's, yeah, Sean? Because when you get kind of like to that end, that that like, out, like a lot of people will soon to follow their king. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember like the very first week we talked about Constantine, right? And Constantine's conversion in the Roman Empire. And that Constantine's conversion was, it, it didn't mean that Christianity was now the official religion of the Roman Empire. That's going to happen later. But everybody around, all right, now the Roman emperor is... Is Christian. Everybody around the Roman Empire is like, okay, now we're going to be Christian too. We're, that, talk about opportunistic conversions. All right, people convert to Christianity because the leader did, right? And so there are political and, and economic incentives to do so, right? Eliot wants King Philip to convert to Christianity for that very reason. So it's kind of in some ways like a trickle-down evangelism, right? Trickle-down missionary work that if King Philip can convert, that would be a huge coup for John Eliot. And so he writes King Philip into this into this text, right? Writes King Philip into this text. But Philip has absolutely no interest in converting to Christianity at, at all, right? In fact, Philip... Uh, will lead, as we'll talk about, a dramatic and, and cataclysmic war against uh, the New Englanders, right? Let's go back to John Sassamon for a second. Let's think a little bit about what Philip is upset about, right, or what, what some of the complaints are against um, New Englanders, right? So the first is obviously, you know, why, why is Philip, you know, so reluctant to embrace Christianity? Why is Philip kind of on the edge of attacking these English settlements, the one kind of first and most obvious answer uh, is constant land encroachment, right? Constant land encroachment. And New England is expanding rapidly during the course of the 17th century, okay? There are thousands and thousands of people coming in. There's, there's a huge migration um, to New England. The population of New England itself... You may want to write this down, right? Population of New England itself goes from 18,000 people in 1640, and this is, this is English settlers, by the way, this is English settlers, 18,000 English colonists in 1640 to 54,000 English colonists in 1670. So constant land encroachment is a, is a key kind of motivation and a key problem. Um, enslavement practices. Enslavement practices. This is a story you guys don't hear much about, and there's more and more historical research about this. Um, but New Englanders constantly enslaved indigenous peoples, and, and often they would call it servitude, um, but very frequently, whether they were war captives or others, They would enslave peoples. Um, One of the things that happens after the the Pequot War is that uh, uh, Pequot Indians get enslaved, right? Uh, Pequot Pequot Indians' uh, war captives get enslaved. Sometimes they're sent to places like Bermuda or the Caribbean, right? We're going to see that happen again later on as well. So enslavement practices is a key reason. Um, Indian sovereignty is a key reason, right? Attacks on Indian sovereignty. As Massachusetts and, and Plymouth kind of expand... You know, they begin to exercise a kind of political and legal jurisdiction over Wampanoag Indians and others. So the concern over uh, Indian sovereignty, legal sovereignty, agency and autonomy and independence, right? And then finally, there are others as well, but finally, you know, many indigenous peoples saw the expansion of missionary Christianity as a fundamental threat to their way of life. Many indigenous peoples saw that Christianity was kind of inherently contradictory, inherently problematic. So let's return then to this guy, John Sassamon. So he's killed in January of 1675. There is a praying Indian, a Christian Indian, who is apparently the only witness who comes forward and says that there are... Three Wampanoag Indians who did this. English colonial authorities believe that praying Indian. And there's a relatively hasty trial, and those three Wampanoag Indians are executed. Right? And there are rumors that these three Wampanoag Indians were directed personally by Metacom, a.k.a. King Philip, to, uh, to kill Sassamon. And King Philip responds, because think, about, think of it this way, when I mentioned, like, legal jurisdiction. Um, who's the victim in this crime? Who's the victim in, in this crime? Yeah, John Sassamon, okay? And at least according to what we know so far, at least in the trial, who are the three perpetrators of the crime? Like three Wampanoags, right? Three, three Indians, okay? And then where did it happen? In Indian country. So what's the argument that King Philip is making, do you think, in 1675, about English legal jurisdiction? Yeah? They are on their property? Yeah. It's, it was an Indian victim, uh, according to this trial, right? It's an Indian victim. Indian perpetrators on Indian land in the English have legal authority to try this, right? So part of it is about sovereignty. Part of it is, is very much about kind of you know, legal encroachment. So the trial is over and and these people are executed, these three Wampanoags are executed in in June of of 1675 and King Philip's war erupts shortly thereafter. Now I had mentioned, I, I had said it was arguably the most catastrophic war in American history, not by total number of deaths, but in terms of per capita, in terms of the destruction of property, in terms of the number of people who were killed or wounded, per capita, within the, the larger population, both Indians and English, you can make the case for this. right? You can make the case it's certainly one of the most destructive wars. right? The war itself took place from the summer of 1675 until the late summer of 1676. It's incredibly violent, incredible carnage and violence. English towns were sacked and destroyed. Right? English settlers were killed and taken captive. Indian villages and crops were burned. Indians were massacred and enslaved. Again, uh, kind of in a, in a redux of the Pequot War, Indians who get captured uh, war, as war captives get shipped to the Caribbean to work on these brutal uh, sugar plantations in places like Barbados. Right? Thousands of people are killed in this, in this process. It is an incredibly horrific war. Um, There are stories that come out of English presses of of Indian soldiers who, when they kill and and capture, um, capture or kill, uh, English victims, that they would make amulets out of their body parts, right? Uh, These are stories that would kind of reinforce English colonial ideas of Indian savagery and barbarity, right? When King Philip is captured, you can see Medicom returns and is killed in August of, of 1676, they chop up his body. King Philip's body is chopped up. His head is put on a pike and displayed. Body parts are kind of given away as war trophies. So it's just an incredible uh, amount of of violence and barbarity between these groups. right? And Christian Indians are caught smack dab in the middle of it. Think back to Kichijiro. Think back to to the beginning story with Sassamon. Christian Indians are caught in the middle of it. And this is a, a 20th century depiction of John Eliot, right, who we've met, speaking with Natick Indians who are being led away in chains to Deer Island in the fall of 1675. Massachusetts colonial authorities believe that even though Christian Indians living in praying towns might nominally be allied with them, right, even though they're nominally Christian, they still could not be trusted. And so they decide to round them up And put them in essentially in internment camps. Right, in the fall of 1675, the purpose of these camps is to kind of corral them and to keep them in in a tight spot where they can be supervised. But if any of you know, you know Boston Harbor. In the winter, it gets extremely cold. It's barren. It's bleak. They had basically no firewood, no chance to grow things, limited food, limited water, no shelter. Right? And dozens and dozens of, of Indians die on Deer Island. Deer Island today is out in Boston Harbor. It's a wastewater treatment plant. Right, um, It's a re- in some ways kind of a, a reflection of how they, uh, how they treated the Christian Indians. Right? So what happens to them afterwards? Well, essentially after the war with all of this destruction, English colonists have an even more hardened set of stereotypes about indigenous peoples Right? regular kind of run-of-the-mill English colonists are much less willing to donate to or support missionary work among Indians. So people like John Eliot, who have been pushing for it for years and who survived King Philip's War, faces an up, uphill battle to try to get support for these uh, Indian towns, for these Indian missionary communities. And one of the things that happens is that these praying towns get basically dissolved. They either get you know, abandoned or they get destroyed by the war. And then after the war, only four of them get reconstituted, right? Natick is one of them. Natick gets reconstituted as a a praying Indian town, but it essentially operates as a reservation, right? It essentially operates as an Indian reservation rather than a uh, kind of uh, the central focus on a praying town, right? And eventually, over time, the process of dispossession is going to work its way again. This is what um, one scholar calls dispossession by degrees, Right there's a, a study of this in of Natick, Massachusetts that the Indians who who lived in Natick uh, after King Philip's War over the course of several generations because of uh, land debts and other issues they eventually get dispossessed over time. Right, so eventually these missionary programs um, kind of fizzle away. Right, I do want to talk a little bit though before we end about kind of the legacy here. Right, and the way in which. The past, even though this is way back in the 17th century, the past very much still remains with us today, right? The way in which these, the, legacies, the legacy of these encounters is still visible, right? And you guys actually may not notice this, but I hope you notice this after this, this, les- les- uh, this lesson, is that you see these types of markers all over the place. All around New England, you see Indian place names, right? And some of them are specifically tied to this history that we've explored today, right? So they're left in the names of things like public parks and towns and mascots, road and street names, golf courses and even restaurants and motels. Right? Um, this is a mural. This image that we, we have here is actually a mural that was um, put up in, during the New Deal, right, in the 1930s, uh, as, a, as part of um, you, know, kind of an uh, ec- economic project to support artists. Uh, and it, it tells a very particular story about about you know, natick 's native past right um, Saassamon Trace Golf Course in Natick, Massachusetts, um, named you know specifically after John Sassamon. Speen Street in Natick, Massachusetts. This is a street that cuts through right near the uh, the Natick mall um, and speen street the the Speen family was uh, a, a pretty well known and prominent family of Indian Christian ministers in Natick. Right? The Speen name uh, is still kind of there. And, the, of course, the famous King Philip Motor Inn. Uh, you know, so you, you see these things, and I'm sure some of you live in towns uh, that have things like King Philip Drive or Metacomet Park and things like that. These names are kind of everywhere, and they, they continue in some ways. Um, even your licenses, right? Even your licenses have kind of reflections and continuations of these, these legacies. Uh, you know, up in the top left corner, what's that? That's the seal of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So the current seal used by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is based on the previous Massachusetts Bay Colony seal. It's clearly taken out the come over and help us, but still the Native American imagery and motif is still there. It's still pervasive in our current uh, climate, in our current discussion, right? But Native peoples did not disappear, and that's one really important thing to say, right? And it's an important thing to recognize. And there have been really significant and important attempts to kind of wrestle with this memory and with this legacy, but also to make this past more visible and to make Native peoples more visible today as well. This is an example, an image from a a wedding that happened at Elliott Church in Natick. As it says here, this is the first in about 300 years. There's an annual powwow uh, in Natick held by Natick praying Indians. Um, And there are also efforts to kind of rejuvenate indigenous cultures uh, through language reclamation projects, right? So as a result of dispossession and land loss and and cultural change and things like that, one of the things that happens is that indigenous peoples lose their languages, right? That languages become kind of a, a product of colonial um, processes, right? Well, there is an attempt by the Wampanoags, uh, a pretty well-known one, to engage in this process of language reclamation, right? Uh, and one of the things that they're doing is they turn to these older 17th century texts, which are not perfect. They're, they're problematic in a lot of ways, but they still give important insights into how to reconstitute languages. And so people are going back to those texts that were done by John Eliot and John Sassamon, in order to reconstitute this language, and in order to help this culture um, you know, keep, continue to thrive, right? And for our purposes, um, as we move forward and talk about later Protestant missionaries in the, in the later part of the 17th and into the 18th centuries in the next couple of weeks, it's important that these motifs continue, it's important that you think about that these motifs kind of continue to pervade these discussions, right? So on the right you have a seal from this group, known as the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. This is an Anglican organization founded in 1701, right at the dawn of the 18th century, right. And it's certainly not the exact same type of image, right? Um, but there are some similar similarities there, right? We've got you know this this kind of larger-than-life man on a boat bringing, what's probably like sacred scripture, the Bible, right, um, to these people. This is kind of like, you know, generically indigenous people, right? But what we do see here is we see some Latin, transients aduenos. Anybody have any idea what that might say? And I'll, I'll tell you right now, you don't need to know the Latin to have the answer. Single guess, no idea, just no clue. I wouldn't focus on the. I wouldn't focus on the Latin. I would focus on the comparison between the two images. Ryan, Could come over and help us? It is come over and help us. It's Latin for come over and help us. So once again, thank you, Ryan, for bailing us out of that. <laughs> for, so so once again, we see this kind of imagery, this this um, this rhetoric, right? This this kind of scripture being reinvoked again when we see the rise of this kind of organization in the early part of the eighteenth the century. Okay? But that's another story that we'll we'll get to later. Okay. Thank you everybody. Have a great day. We'll see you later. Thanks. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. at midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.